a question? What did you guys learn today? Um, Everything. <laughs> From Montana Public Radio, this is Subsurface, resisting Montana's underwater invaders. I'm Nikki Ouellette, and today we're going on a mission of science discovery. Now, what I want you to do is start putting your ears on. What are we going to do? We're going to start listening because we're going to get ready to learn, get some knowledge. I've heard a lot of people tell the story about invasive quagga and zebra mussels, how the tiny bivalves infested the Great Lakes and kept spreading, damaging boats and pipes, cutting up feet, and messing up lake food chains. But of all the people who have told me the mussel's story, one person tells it especially well, in a way that I still think of when I'm trying to tell it. That person is Paula Webster. So today, I'm here to talk to you about water and our concern with the two cousins. Two cousins have come our way. They're called the mussels. Last spring, Paula told this story to elementary school students from all over western Montana at a river honoring near Ronan. Paula is the water quality program manager and a tribal member from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes on the Flathead Reservation. When these things start, they're microscopic. Say the word, microscopic. microscopic. That means you can't see them. So they start small and they're a villager and they're not attached, they're free floating. Everybody go like this, free floating. Ah, we're free floating. Yeah. The kids are sitting in the middle of a field on the shore of the Lower Flathead River, waving their arms around and yelling things like villager and bissel thread. Paula kind of urges them on. She tells them to say new words out loud and mimic little hand motions to help them remember. It totally helps. And then when they get big, they grow shells. They grow bissel threads. Everybody go like this. That's a bissel thread. And that's what they do to attach to something. Paula starts leading the kids around in a circle, acting out the muscle life cycle. I'm a villager. I'm a villager. I'm microscopic. I'm microscopic. I'm floating around. I'm floating around. Oh, I'm growing. Oh, I'm growing. I'm getting a, a, a shell. I'm getting a, a shell. I'm growing a bissel thread. Let's find our chair and connect your missile. That's pretty much it for a mussel. They start out really tiny as a villager, float around for a couple of weeks while they grow a shell, settle onto a hard surface using their bissel threads, and filter feed for a couple years. Why is every fourth grader in Montana learning about the life cycle of invasive quagga and zebra mussels? Well, we think we found them for the first time in Montana last summer in two reservoirs east of the Continental Divide, Tiber and Canyon Ferry. These mussels are highly invasive. There are beaches in Wisconsin and Michigan that are covered in feet of razor-sharp shells. Nationwide, drinking water facilities, hydropower dams, and agricultural irrigators pay tens of millions of dollars each year because the mussels damage their equipment. Lakes with zebra and quagga mussels are changing in ways that we don't fully understand yet, 
and that could mean trouble for fish. We talked about what's at stake when the mussels invade in the first episode of Subsurface, reporting from the future. Today, we're diving in to what we know about the mussels. What are they? Where did they come from? How'd they get here? What can we do to stop them from spreading? We're trying to understand how those microscopic mussel babies ended up in two Montana reservoirs last summer, and what our options are if more of them arrive. In this episode, we're tackling the science of spread. As Paula settles the kids back down, she tells them a big, ugly truth about the invasive mussels. These animals don't have wings, and they don't have legs. It's humans that move them around. It's humans that move them around, starting with a big move across the Atlantic Ocean. Zebra and quagga mussels are native in Russia and the Ukraine. Technically, they're two separate species, but the threat they pose to Montana is similar enough that I'm going to talk about them collectively. They first showed up in North America in the mid-1980s in Lake St. Clair, a wide spot on the river that connects Lake Huron and Lake Erie near Detroit, Michigan. Lake St. Clair is a heavily used shipping channel for boats ferrying goods from across the Atlantic Ocean. And scientists think that those boats unknowingly ferried some mussels, too, in the ballast water ships use to balance their loads. The U.S. Geological Survey made this animated map of the mussels' conquest of the United States over time, and it freaks me out every time I watch it because it looks like a war map of battles that we keep losing. You can check it out on our website, mtpr.org. Okay, red dots represent known infestations. The first red dot is from 1988 in Lake St. Clair next to Michigan. By 1990, red dots encircled two and a half of the Great Lakes, Erie and Ontario, and the southern part of Michigan. The next year, red dots line the Illinois River and by 1992, the Mississippi River looks like a red line, too. By the end of the 90s, the eastern half of the country looks like it has a bad case of chickenpox. And in 2007, the red dots jump the continental divide and suddenly appear in lakes in Southern California, Nevada, and Arizona. By 2017, just 10 years later, the only major river system in the continental United States still free of quagga and zebra mussels is the Columbia Basin in Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. The only thing that seems to stop them are lakes that don't have enough calcium for them to build their shells. To get a sense of how the mussels spread, I went to the lake where Minnesota first found them back in 2002. Here, here it is, right here. This is, this is the landing. And as you pointed out, point zero. It's public water access. Asa Winnemakee. I'm sitting in the car with my point zero tour guide, Dr. Art Weaver, a retired rheumatologist who's the unofficial local expert on non-native species invasions. I must say that I'm really surprised because it's just a dirt, it's a dirt driveway leading to one boat ramp and That's it is exactly tiny. It is tiny. We almost missed the turnoff for this little dirt parking lot. It's raining, it's dark, but I can make out the concrete boat ramp and a wooden dock. 
There's nothing particularly notable about this boat launch or Lake Ossawinamakee, except that it's the first lake in all of Minnesota to have zebra mussels. This could be happening in Tiber Reservoir in Montana right now. Last summer, lake ecologists definitely found baby mussels, villagers, but no evidence of adults yet. It's more intimidating for me thinking that such, you know, such a small lake could be ground zero. There's just literally hundreds of these little lakes that are pristine that we want to protect. Art and his wife live on Weaver's Point on Pelican Lake near Lake Ossawinamakee. The point is named for Art's family. He can tell you every local species of tree, animal, and fish, and he knows the year each non-native species first invaded the lakes around his house. You know, it's not just the zebra mussels, uh, Nikki. It's uh, uh, curly leaf pondweed. It's uh, uh, Eurasian milfoil. And now we have a new type of milfoil, a hybrid milfoil, that is a combination between... Art has deep emotional ties to these lakes, and he carries uh, almost a sense of moral obligation uh, to protect them from invasive species. You know, the environment has been very, very important to me, and I think that uh, this is absolutely, and uh, certainly you live in the same type of an area, uh, critically important uh, to maintain the pristine nature of our trees, of our waters, and so on. The invasive species are something we didn't anticipate, uh, but it's a new front that we need to battle. Art's the kind of guy who can convince his neighbors to check their boats for mussels. The kind of guy who talks a local car wash owner into retrofitting the ports so boats can pull through for a washdown. But ultimately, he sees these personal actions as stopgap measures. He's counting on science to win this war. The answers are going to come not from inspection and not from mandatory decontamination. That will help, and it will slow the spread. Uh, But the answers are going to come from the scientific community, and uh, we will have those answers down the line. It's going to take some time. But those people that say it's coming anyway, let's not even spend all the money, that is absolutely the incorrect. We can prevent and slow the spread until we have the appropriate scientific method to deter the zebra mussels and other invasive species. Art Weaver says answers are going to come from the scientific community. So I went south to St. Paul, and I asked a scientist who's an expert on the invasive bivalves, what do we know about how the mussels spread? It's our thesis that that's a process which can be understood, one, and isn't entirely, um, and, and two, it can be prevented. Mike McCartney is basically a detective, tracking the mussels every move. He's the lead zebra mussel researcher at the Minnesota Aquatic Invasive Species Research Center in St. Paul. Mike and his research partner, Sophie Malay, are trying to answer two basic questions. One, what's moving the mussels? And two, what paths do the mussels follow to invade new lakes? He thinks if he can get a really good sense of how the mussels move around, we'd have a better chance of stopping them. Let's start with question one, what's moving the mussels? It's clearly being carried by overland 
deck tours. You know, they can be either boats that are being trailered over short distances, or they can be equipment that's getting moved from lake to lake, like boat lifts and docks here, you know. Studies have shown that microscopic baby mussels can survive highway rides. Any water left over in a boat or weeds hanging off the trailer could potentially carry mussels to a new lake and start a new infestation. Equipment that's in the water more permanently, like docks, boat lifts, and offshore rafts, can carry entire colonies of mussels if it's moved from one lake to another. If that thing is moved out in the late summer or fall, it's like a bomb. What about seaplanes? Number one, they can sit in waterways for a while, and uh, they could have, on the floats, they could actually have newly settled mussels on them, I suppose. People in Montana have asked me if birds can transport mussels. I've been asked at every single public event that I've spoken at. It's interesting why it's so often in people's minds, you know. Um, And some people have said it's because people are trying to shirk responsibility or they're trying to lay blame on something that they can kind of get a handle on. Or It's not impossible. Um, It's pretty unlikely if you look at it. You know, like if you think, oh, well, I mean, I think people mainly think that they're Their feathers are soaked in villagers. Well, these are feathers that are built to repel water. So Mike knows how the mussels get around. They hitchhike, either as microscopic babies in water left over in boats, as adults clinging to weeds dangling from trailers, or as colonies encrusted on docks and boat lifts. On to question number two. What paths do the mussels follow to invade new lakes? This one's a little trickier, because Mike is essentially trying to go back in time and map out the mussel's movement from Lake A to Lake B. He thought about how to do that for a while and came up with an ingenious solution. Well, okay, um, why not invasion genetics? Invasion genetics uses DNA to track specific mussel families and can identify if the tiny mollusks in one lake are related to a lake upstream or if they came from somewhere else. Most species' DNA is almost identical but there are tiny differences that indicate which individuals are related to others. Once they know which infestations are related, they can draw lines on maps and look for opportunities to contain the mussels. Maybe that means mandatory decontamination of all boats coming off the water. Maybe they close the lake to motorboats. Maybe they choke the mussels out with chemicals. When Mike started his research, his team expected all the lines would lead back to a couple really popular lakes. They called them super spreader lakes. So we started sampling. So we've, we've uh, you know, gone around the state and characterized populations that are living in all these different lakes. And we've you know, kind of at first we cherry picked the populations that we thought were uh, um, some of the most crucial ones in kind of putting together the story. Um, for how the state had gotten invaded. Then Mike looked at the DNA of the mussels. That let him know which were related to each other. He could start drawing arrows on his map, connecting one colonizing infestation to another. You could think about it like a strain of zebra mussels, which is just subtly different enough that we can pick it up. Mike found three separate strains of mussels. Each matched up with a lake chain region, That means that each region was dominated by a single family of mussels, like a lake chain dynasty. This was a surprise. Mike had expected the arrows on his invasion map would be really mixed up and genetically diverse, which would tell him that boats are moving mussels all over the state all the time. 
But instead, he found these genetically similar strains, which tells him that the invasion of the whole region started from the same original infestation, one arrow in, and the descendants from that arrow pointing to every other lake in the chain connected by water. The genetic pattern we've got is that there was uh, an invasion in each of these, at least one into each of these regions from outside the region, and we can't say what that was, which is the most, you know, right now the most frustrating, well, it's not that frustrating, it's just, you know, it's a limitation. We can't say where it's from. But I think what we found out is almost even more important for managers, and that is there's this regional pattern. This is what happened in and around Lake Ossawinamakee, which is part of a big chain of lakes. However the mussels first got there, they quickly spread to other lakes, either down the road in water left over in trailered boats, or drifting downstream on their own or attached to weeds, or hitchhiking on boats that paddled from lake to lake via river channels. Connected lakes in Minnesota are a big issue for mussel spread. Uh, the lakes that are connected in Minnesota and downstream are about 27 times more likely to get invaded than the ones that are not connected by waterways. This tells Mike a few things. For one, lakes that are connected will likely infest each other, upstream and downstream. It's kind of like how if one kid in your class gets lice, it's a safe bet that a bunch more of your classmates are also going to get lice. Second, it's really important to prevent that first infestation into a new area, because that first infestation will likely bleed into other nearby lakes. Third, Mike says managers can use this information to decide where to place inspection and decontamination stations. If we can lessen the likelihood of us moving them around, Mike says we can lessen the likelihood of an invasion. I think any reasonable extension of what we know would say, yeah, we can, we can, we can prevent the invasion of some lakes. We're going to take a quick break. When Subsurface returns, we're on the hunt for muscle DNA and angel choirs. Stay tuned. This is Subsurface, Resisting Montana's Underwater Invaders, a podcast from Montana Public Radio. We're in the middle of episode two, The Science of Spread. You can find previous and future episodes and check out pictures and video from Nikki's trip to the Great Lakes on our website, mtpr.org. Did you know that a single female mussel can produce a million eggs a year? In a minute, we're heading out on a boat to see if we can find those babies using high-tech microscopes and machines that glow. We're back. This is Subsurface, Episode 2, The Science of Spread. I'm Nikki Willette, and before the break, we learned that humans often cause new zebra and quagga mussel infestations, and we also learned how we're moving them around, mostly by boats. That's the science behind the boat check stations that you've probably seen along the highway or at some boat launches last year, where inspectors use their hands and eyes to find the mussels. We're next to the boat ramp at City Beach in Whitefish, Montana. Boaters who want to use this particular ramp are required by the city to go through an inspection prior to launch. 
Um, bodies of water they've been on the last 30 days. None. It's all coming out of storage, mm -hmm. pretty much. Inspectors ask where the boat came from to see if it's from a lake with a known infestation, and then they go and they look for mussels in or on the boat. Can you can you open them up for me? Sure. So look at them all, please. The inspector checks live wells for leftover water, asks boaters to lower and gun their motors to force any residual water out, look for weeds attached to the boat or trailer, and finally, the inspector runs their hand over the hull to check for juvenile mussels, which will feel like sandpaper. That's for sure. If an inspector sees or feels anything that raises a red flag, they can prevent it from entering the water and thereby prevent a new infestation. This is the lake's first line of defense, but it can be porous. Feeling for mussels on a boat is kind of like checking for ticks. Sometimes you miss one and you get bit. If we miss a mussel-fouled boat, that's a potential infestation. So lake ecologists are also checking the lakes themselves for mussels. Sometimes we send divers to look for adult colonies, but those are really hard to find. It's a lot faster to look for baby mussels that might be free-floating in the water. To do that, ecologists scoop up water samples from lakes all over the state, and they bring the samples to a lab in Helena, where a technician from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, like Stacy Schmidt, uses a fancy microscope to look for villagers. And so our microscope is a dissecting microscope that's set up to have um, cross-polarized light capability. Think of polarized sunglasses. Take two pairs, rotate one 90 degrees, and everything will look kind of black. And when you do that with a microscope, it turns everything black, but it causes certain min minerals to glow. And one of those minerals that glows is the, is the shells of bivalves. And so it makes them really easy to pick up. Okay, the glowing shells don't actually sound like a choir of angels, but they do look like glowing plus signs kind of pretty. This is what ecologists found in several samples from Tiber Reservoir in fall 2016. We also had a few suspect samples from Canyon Ferry Reservoir and the Missouri River. We haven't found the glowing plus signs since. There are benefits and shortfalls to this type of sampling, which is called microscopy. The benefits are that we can see if a lake has mussels in it without having to search for adult colonies underwater. That means we know sooner whether a lake is infested or not. The sooner we know, the sooner we can do something about it. The shortfall is that villager sampling only works certain times of the year, when the water is warm enough for mussels to actively breed. But a team of scientists on Flathead Lake, where mussels haven't been found yet, are hoping to change that. They want to be able to check lakes for mussels any time of the year. And they want a fail-safe way of finding mussels on boats before they even enter the water. Phil Matson took me out on Flathead Lake last spring to show me the first step of this new early detection strategy. We're going to take some samples from the surface of the lake, and we're going to take some samples from the bottom of the lake. Phil is looking not for the adult or mussel babies themselves, but for their genetic fingerprints. The Flathead Lake Biological Station uses what's called environmental DNA, or eDNA, it's basically bits of genes floating around in the water, to determine if a specific species has ever been in the lake. So the DNA gets sloughed off through feces or dead cells. Just like we have our skin, our skin sloughs off, 
that DNA is very concentrated and it will it collects in the water so anytime that we collect some water we'll be able to extract the DNA from that. This sampling method has been around for a while it's often used to find where endangered and threatened species are and then target those areas for conservation. Now, a team at the biostation is pioneering how to detect quagga and zebra mussels specifically, with the hope that positively identifying them in a water body sooner could help managers halt their spread. Today, Phil will sample seven sites on Flathead Lake. We head to the first one. We're at the East Shore boat site. He drops a very fine mesh net nine meters under the startlingly clear water using a winch. And he holds another net just under the surface as the boat slowly trawls forward. After a minute, the nets come up, and Phil uses a syringe of ethanol to coax green and brown gunk trapped inside his net into a test tube. Oh, gross. Gross? That's yeah. good stuff. This is what he's after. That green and brown gunk is a mix of algae, plankton, and bits of genetic material that hold the answer to whether Flathead Lake has mussels in it. Spoiler, researchers haven't found any invasive mussels in Flathead Lake. With samples successfully collected, we head back to the lab. We're going to Yellow Bay? Yep. Please and thank you. This next part is where the biostation is really pioneering the science. DNA is pretty much the same across species, but each species has a tiny segment that's specific to itself. The biostation team found a segment that only zebra and quagga mussels have, and then they mix this tiny segment, they call it a key, with the lake sample. If the key matches the sample, it causes a tiny reaction. Basically, it's a jigsaw puzzle. Sean Devlin is an assistant research professor at the biostation. He says a highly sensitive machine can see and count those tiny reactions. So we get this little glow in the system. The machine also doesn't really make that sound, but it forces this reaction to happen over and over so that it's easier to see. And after 40 or so times, the machine has a good idea how many strands of muscle DNA were in the sample to begin with. Sean says between the number of matches and the location of the samples, they can get a good idea of where the DNA is most highly concentrated. In other words, where the actual muscles might be. Then we can really focus in and say, hey, we probably have an, uh, an infestation there by using the relative abundance of those genes moving closer to the point where we think that that colony is established. Sean says sampling eDNA has huge advantages. What I find is the most compelling reason to use it is, is that it will detect the presence of the organism at any life stage, any time of year. So if we can go out and we can find them, say, before the breeding cycle begins in June and in July, and we find them in April, we might be able to do something about them much more quickly. Sean says that right now, sampling for eDNA is the fastest way to tell if mussels have been in a lake. But what if we could do the same thing on boats and potentially find the mussels before they even enter a new body of water? The biostation thinks they can. They're almost finished developing a new machine that uses the same technology as in the lab, but this machine is portable and even faster. They hope to use it in the field at boat inspection sites as soon as next season. We'll take a suitcase and it'll have a plug coming out the back that we'll put into a cigarette lighter and a tube coming out the front that will suck our sample into the system and then give it a few minutes and we can do the next sample and the next sample. And based on when 
the reaction time comes through anywhere from 45 to 45 minutes to 60 minutes later, we'll know what sample was that uh, we're getting data for, and we'll understand if there's DNA from zebra mussels or quagga mussels present within that time frame. The idea is to eliminate human error at inspection stations. Indeed. This is really exciting technology, but it also has some drawbacks. eDNA can produce false positives. A glowing sample could come from a full-on infestation, or it could come from a dead muscle or a muscle byproduct like pseudofeces. That's a fancy word for muscle poop. A positive hit with eDNA would need some serious follow-up with other sampling methods to tell if a full-blown adult colony has established in a lake. All this time, money, and energy learning about mussels is necessary in order to make good choices about how we try to contain them. Knowing about where mussels live and how they spread gives us a clue about how to stop them spreading. That's what we'll talk about next time on Subsurface. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Nikki Ouellette. Nora Sachs is our associate producer. Eric Whitney is our editor and executive producer. Josh Burnham is our web editor. Subsurface is a production of Montana Public Radio with financial support from the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting about responses to social problems. Learn more at our website, mtpr.org.